Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In the book of Joshua, we're going to meditate on the way that God keeps his promises to Israel and to us, even when the circumstances suggest that maybe there's no possible way for our fears to be overcome. We're going to see the way he fills his people with strength and courage to face those fears. We're also going to have to think through some thorny moral questions as well. For example, we're going to have to confront the question, when is it okay to tell a lie? The age-old question, when is it okay to lie to the Nazis? Can you do evil for the greater good? When we get to the story of Rahab, we're going to have to confront that question and, and, and work through that idea of what our responsibilities are in difficult situations. We're also going to have to face other kinds of thorny questions, such as what kind of a God orders the death of men, women, and children in battle? what we would consider genocide. And in our text, we will see God commanding exactly this. Uh, these are difficult passages. If they're not difficult for you, it's because you're not reading them properly. These are difficult things, and we're going to have to confront those things. And in the course of working through the book of Joshua, we will take that head on. But we'll do something else as well. As we study the story of the book of Joshua and the story of Israel entering into the promised land, we're going to see what it means for the people of God to enter into the promise. Because the history that is recorded for us is recorded for us to guide us, to shape us, and to inform us, to teach us things that are useful to us today as we, believers in Jesus Christ, seek to enter into the promise. Joshua is an important figure in Old Testament history because Joshua is the one who leads the people of Israel into the promised land. And when we think about that, that narrative, we think about it mainly through the eyes of Moses. Moses is the one who brings the people out of Egyptian bondage. Moses is the one who leads them through the wilderness years. But Moses is not the one who brings the people into the promised land. That's Joshua. Joshua does that. And in that sense, Joshua becomes the savior of his people. Because the salvation of Israel isn't just salvation from Egyptian bondage. It's salvation to the land of promise. God doesn't just say, look, I see your slavery and it's really bad and I'm going to end that and basically set you loose in the world to fend for yourself. Instead, he says, I will bring you out of that bondage and bring you into the land that was promised to you. So there's the negative, but there's also the positive, and the salvation isn't done until both of those things are accomplished. But the problem is Moses died before that promise was kept. Moses did bring the people out of Egypt, and he did shepherd them through the wilderness, but then... He died. And when he died, you can imagine the, the question mark that that placed over the whole story of Israel. People had to wonder what the death of Moses signified. If Moses is the great deliverer, Moses is the one 
who's supposed to lead us to freedom, and now Moses is dead, does that mean God's done with us? Is this where it ends? Is the death of Moses the end of the promise? And of course it isn't. Because when Moses dies, God raises up Joshua. The question is, will God keep his promise? And the answer comes in Joshua. Not in an end, but in a beginning. The beginning of the fulfillment of that promise to enter into the land. So that's where our text finds us in Joshua chapter 1. And this morning we'll look at the first nine verses, the first long paragraph in the book of Joshua, where we read these words. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Moses is dead, the Lord says. Now rise up. Now go. It's time to move into action. Joshua gets his marching orders. But who is this guy? Who is Joshua? He's not introduced for the first time in the book of Joshua. He is encountered earlier, and he plays an important role in the events that led the people of Israel into the wilderness in the first place. Joshua is different from his contemporaries. Joshua is different from his peers. Twelve tribes were sent by Moses to scout out the promised land, to see what it was like. When they came back, most of them came back with an impression of the obstacles. God had promised the land to them. He had said, you will inhabit this land. But most of the people who surveyed it, when they came back, said, actually, I'm not so sure about this. There are giants in the land. There are other people there, people who aren't going to welcome us. I'm not so sure that this is a land we can enter into. It'll be hard. What they came away with was an impression of essentially their fears, but not Joshua. Two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, when they came back, they had seen the same thing. They had witnessed the same obstacles, but what they saw more than that was the goodness of the place that had been promised to them. 
So they came back not deceiving themselves. They weren't blinded to the giants, but they came back believing that God would give them what he had promised and that when they possessed it, it would be good. It would be a blessing. And so they urged the people not to listen to the majority. They urged the people to enter into the land that was promised. And the people were so impressed by the testimony of these young men that they gathered stones to kill them. (laughs) Because people don't like to be told to go forward in the face of their fears. That people don't like to be encouraged to do what doesn't make sense to them. They would have stoned them if the glory of God hadn't appeared to them and stopped them. So that's Joshua. Joshua is a young man who isn't led by the fears that those around him have, but instead has a kind of fearlessness that comes through faith in what God has promised. Because the people did not trust the testimony of Joshua, they received a punishment. They were forced to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And in that wilderness, which as we've seen becomes a kind of picture for us of our life in this world, in that wilderness, they endure many trials, many hardships, and those who rejected the promise ultimately succumb in the wilderness. The new generation is raised up. Moses, who had led the people up to then, cannot enter into the promised land because even he in the wilderness, when tested, had failed to trust God. He had struck a rock that he was meant to speak to and in doing so had shown disrespect for the glory of God. And so Moses couldn't enter into that land. But Joshua, who had borne testimony to the truth from the very beginning, Joshua was appointed as successor to Moses. At the end of of the people's journey in the wilderness, they gather together at Moab, they reaffirm the covenant promises of God. Moses is told he's going to die. He sings a great song of praise to God. He speaks to the tribes before he goes. And Joshua is appointed by God to be his successor That's at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And God says to him, be strong and courageous. The same words that are spoken here. Now, Joshua, after the death of Moses, is told to do the work that Moses could not do. Moses could lead the people out of captivity, but he could not bring them into the promised land. Joshua is told to lead them. And even his name suggests the work that he's given to do, because the name Joshua in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. So it's a fitting name for one who will be the savior of his people. There's continuity here. The the, the plan doesn't end with Moses. God will continue to be present with the people. He will continue to keep the promise that was made. He will work through Joshua just as he worked through Moses. He assures Joshua of all of these things, but he also commands him to do something as well. He says to him, I will be faithful to you. I will be present. Only be strong and courageous, strong and very courageous and keep the law and meditate on it, which are not two different things, but but two parts of the same thing. His strength and his courage will be shown through his faithfulness to the law that was given to Moses. 
The three times in our text you see these words, to be strong and courageous or very courageous. It's in verse 6, repeated in verse 7, and then again in verse 9. In Deuteronomy 31.23, God says the same thing when he appoints Joshua. as strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Well, what does it mean to be strong and courageous? In this context, you have to think about what would the opposite thing be. What would the opposite of be of strength and courage for Joshua? It would be essentially to be like the other spies who went into Canaan with him. Like men who had gone out into the land, had surveyed the land, the same land that's now described to Joshua, where he's told every, every step you take, the land will belong to you. That same land, those men had surveyed, and they'd come away fearful. Seeing what was in front of them led them not to want to go forward despite the promise. That's the opposite of strength and courage, to turn their backs on the gift that God had promised them. Joshua's being told, don't be that way. Don't be fearful, be fearless. Be fearless. Not that there's nothing to be afraid of. Of course there is. There are many powers arrayed against you. There are people who will stand against you and will oppose you. But God says they will not defeat you. They will not be able to stand against you. I will take care of you. There had to be plenty of doubt, plenty of unanswered questions for these people and for their leader. But Joshua is told to be strong and courageous despite those doubts, despite those unanswered questions, to continue fearlessly trusting in the goodness of God. Joshua has to act like a person who believes that the promise will be fulfilled. Because fearfulness is how we act when we don't believe it. We know what's been promised, but we stop believing it will actually come to pass. We stop believing in the reality of it. That is to succumb to our fears. But none of us like to admit that we're fearful. None of us like to admit that we're succumbing to our fears. So we find other ways to speak about it. And we kind of want to stone the people who point it out to us. But we are all fearful people. We have plenty of good reason to be fearful. And in the face of those good reasons, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And he says, keep the law and meditate on it. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Stay in the law. Inhabit the law. Keep the law. Meditate on it day and night. This is exactly the same thing that the psalmist in Psalm 1 says is true of a righteous man. The righteous man of Psalm 1 meditates day and night on the law, day and night. And if he does this, if he does everything written in the law, then he will have good success. We all want that, not just success, but good success. Not sure if there's any other kind, but this is especially successful success. You will have good success. As a result of that, if you're beginning a series on the book of Joshua, and you come across words like these, words that, that seem to promise something that we would all like to hear about, this would be a good place to dwell. How can you be successful? 
what does God say that the, the steps are to live a successful life? And it's almost as if we're being handed these things if you want to be successful. Good news. It's actually pretty simple. All you need to do to have good success is to be strong and courageous or very courageous and keep all of the law and meditate it on it day and night. And it's currently day, so I hope you're meditating on it right now, <laughs> strongly and very courageously meditating on it currently and later tonight when it's it's a blizzard, you need to meditate on the law then as well, constantly, always living in it, keeping it, and that's all you've got to do. And then you'll live the successful Christian life. And a lot of times, even though we preach a gospel of grace, we camp out on these moralistic applications because we all want to be successful. And a lot of times we turn our churches into like workshops on how to live a better life, how to get ahead, how to be uh, accomplishing more. And it seems as if the text is just jumping out at us and saying, this is how you do it. If you're strong and courageous and you keep the law, then you will be rewarded by God with success. And if you're not a successful Christian, then maybe uh, you need to be stronger. If you're not a successful Christian, maybe you could try being a little more courageous, a little more faithful, a little less fearful. And maybe you could start keeping the law because the rest of us have noticed you're not doing a very good job at it. So we encourage each other to be better people, be better people. And this leaves something out. In fact, I would suggest it leaves out the most important thing because it makes um, a little mistake when it comes to who we identify with in the story. And Joshua is the savior of Israel. He will lead the people into the promised land. But Joshua is actually more than this. Joshua is a picture of Jesus. And Jesus will save his people from their sins. I mentioned Joshua's name earlier. It's not an accident that this man is called Yahweh saves. And it's actually not the name that he was born with. He had a different name when he was born. He was called Hosea. But in Numbers chapter 13, 16, Joshua, the son of Nun, is introduced as Hosea, the son of Nun, who Moses calls Joshua. Moses, the great mediator of the Old Covenant, when he meets this fearless young man, changes his name, starts calling him. He makes it a little more specific, you might say. Hosea, he saves. It's pretty obvious who the he is there. But, but Moses wants to make it just a little bit more obvious and calls him Joshua. Yahweh saves. Through this man, God will save his people. Through this man, God will save Israel and lead them into the promise, and his name makes it very clear. During Advent, we looked at all of these episodes in the Gospel of Luke where Christ's birth is announced. Angels came to Zechariah and to Mary to talk to them about the significance of Jesus. But we did not look at one pretty important instance of an angel appearing to someone who had some qualms. And that was from Matthew 1, the story of Joseph. Joseph, who is betrothed to Mary, finds out that she is with child. And because he's a righteous man, thinks, well, I should end this quietly so as not to bring shame to Mary. And as he's proceeding with what seems like a pretty uh, just and righteous plan, 
an angel appears to him and puts a stop to it. The angel says that the child that she bears is from the Holy Spirit. This is a good thing and you need to go through with it. But he does more than that. Just as the angel told Zechariah how to name his son, John the Baptist, this angel tells him not only the significance of the son that will be born, tells him what you're going to name him. In Matthew 1, verse 21, the angel speaks these words. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The connection might not be obvious at first because there's a problem of language, which is uh, the book of Joshua, Hebrew, book of Matthew, Greek. So there's a few layers of translation in between. But in the same way that when we say the word Christ in the Old Testament, we mean the same thing as the word Messiah in the Old Testament, or New Testament, Old Testament, you get the idea. Messiah, Hebrew, Christ, Hellenized, Greek form, the same word, anointed. Here's the same thing as well. Jesus, Jesus, Hellenized form of Hebrew name, Joshua. Joshua, Yahweh saves. That's interesting. The angel doesn't come and say, she will bear a child and you shall call his name Moses. For he will deliver his people out of bondage. Because he'll do more than that. He comes and he says, you shall call his name Joshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And to be saved from our sins is more than just to be delivered from the bondage of our sin natures. It is also to be led into the land of promise, to be led into glory, to be made new to be restored in our humanity. Joshua is a reflection or a type of Christ, a picture of Christ. The author of Hebrews, when he talks about the parallel between the work of Joshua and Jesus, points out which of the two is greater, lest we have any concerns. In the same way that the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is greater than Moses. He's a greater mediator of a better covenant. We also see the, the sense in which he's greater even than Joshua. It has to do with rest. In Hebrews 4, verses 8 and 9, we read these words. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What Joshua did in leading the people of Israel into the promised land was give them rest. He brought them into a state of Sabbath, a state of rest, a place where they could dwell, where God could be their God and they could be his people. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't full. And the rest that Joshua gave them was not the rest, the full rest that God had promised. It was a picture of what was to come. And that's the point the author of Hebrews is making. There remains a rest for the people of God. There's a paradise, a promised land that remains for us, not a physical land to inhabit, but a spiritual one, a spiritual one. In our last sermon series, we talked about typology, the way New Testament authors read the Old Testament uh, typologically. Uh, a type is a reflection or a sign or a symbol 
that sheds light on some future reality. So Joshua is a type of Christ. There's something about the work of Joshua that teaches us a little bit more about the work of Jesus. If Joshua is the savior of Israel, so is Jesus in a greater sense, in a deeper way. The entry into the promised land, which is the event that this book chronicles, that too is a reflection of the way that Christ will lead his people into glory. So the story of the conquest of Canaan, so to speak, teaches us things about what God is doing and will do in our own lives. But the problem with stories is that by their very nature, the way they are created, stories have heroes, they have protagonists, and when we read them, we identify with the hero. It's natural to put yourself in the place of the hero of the story, to imagine what it would be like. You read great expectations and you become Pip. You see things through his eyes. You read Pride and Prejudice and you become Elizabeth Bennett, uh, even if you're a guy. <laughs> yeah. We do this all the time. We're reading. We read and we imagine that we're Harry Potter or Katniss Everdeen or whoever the heroes of our stories are. We put ourselves in their place, and the lessons they learn teach us things as well. We identify with them. We, we learn from their example. The lessons that they learn become lessons for us. We imitate their behavior. And, and this can be a good thing. If you read stories and you identify with the hero of the story, you could be heroic too by imitating their deeds, by doing the kind of things they would do. You find yourself in a dilemma and you say, well, what would Harry Potter do? This might lead you to be heroic. If you don't have a wand, it doesn't always work out. But uh, you get the idea. You emulate these good examples. But here's the problem. In the story that God is telling, you are not the hero. And when you identify with the hero, some of the lessons you take away are not the lessons that God is teaching. Sometimes the hero of the story isn't you. So when you look at this story with Joshua as hero, and you let the words spoken to Joshua be the words spoken to you, then what you hear is that God will reward me as long as I am strong and courageous. As long as I keep the law, then I will get what I've been promised. But when you read it that way, you're missing the point. Because you're not Joshua. You're not the hero of the story. You're like the people of Israel. You're not the deliverer. You're the one in need of deliverance. You're not the one who, in the face of all of the fears, in the face of all of the obstacles, says, no, I will be fearless. You're the one who said, where, where are the rocks? I thought we had some stones around here. We need to shut this guy up. That's us. That's us. We aren't Joshua. We need a Joshua. We're not Jesus, but we need Jesus. We can't do what the hero of this story must do in order for it to have a happy ending. We cannot enter the promise by earning it. It's beyond us. But the good news is we don't have to. Christ is the hero of the story that God is telling. And the words spoken to Joshua are words Christ fulfills 
perfectly. Christ is strong and very courageous. Christ kept the whole law, meditating on it day and night, fulfilling it, accomplishing it through a life of perfect obedience. You will not save yourself from your sins. But the very reason why Jesus is named Jesus is that he will save his people from their sins. The very name of Jesus is a song of praise. When we read the book of Joshua, the way that we're going to be reading it, what we're going to be looking at is something theologians call redemptive history, like the history of salvation as told through many different types, many different chapters, epics, eras, that sort of thing. And this isn't a new way of reading the Bible. This is the way the first Christians read the Bible. Um, I mentioned stoning earlier. Not everybody who's threatened with stoning escapes from that fate. Uh, Stephen a deacon of the church in the book of Acts is stoned for the testimony that he bears. Just as Joshua once told the people to fearlessly enter into the promise, Stephen spoke to the same people and called on them to fearlessly enter into the promise, and they stoned him for it. But the way he spoke, the sermon he preached to them was full of this idea of the history of redemption. He told them back the story of the Old Testament as the story of Christ, and he emphasized to them what I emphasized two weeks ago, that that whole story has a theme, and it's about God building for himself a dwelling place. Listen to Stephen's sermon. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet... The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? When we study the story of redemption, we are studying the work of God's hands. Our salvation from start to finish is the work of God. And the greatest mistake that we can make is to think that it is the work of our own hands, that it's something we do. When your salvation is up to you, when it rests on you, then you have good reason to be fearful, to be filled with anxiety. And when we're filled with anxiety, knowing that that our fate is in our hands, that it's up to us to do it. The only way to quiet those fears is with an extra helping of self-righteousness, which is why so many moralistic Christians who believe in a gospel of grace but do not live it aren't fearful or, if anything, overconfident because they believe that they are very righteous, very courageous, very strong, that they're actually managing to do but none of us can do. And so we find fearfulness and we find self-righteousness. All when our salvation is up to us and the choices that we make. But 
If it's all up to us, we have nothing to be thankful for. If all God has done is made it possible for us to save ourselves, then we have no reason to be grateful for all that he's done because he's made us a promise and left it up to us to fulfill it. But if God has done it all, if the work of salvation is the work of God's hands, if it isn't possible for us to build ourselves into a dwelling place for God, but he builds us into that dwelling place, then we have nothing to be but thankful, filled with thankfulness, with gratitude. A gratitude that's expressed every time we call on the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is a song of praise. The name of Jesus is a prayer. It is an appeal. The very name of Jesus, if we stopped there, if all we said was Jesus, we would be saying, Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Let that be our prayer. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.